in movies, um, every epic scene always has some kind of soundtrack, like a score to the background, right? Think like, you know, The Last Samurai or like Gladiator, right? Right? That's what I'm saying, right? So, um, there's a score to the background of your life. There's a, there's a soundtrack to the background of your life. Every decision you make is always accompanied by some kind of soundtrack to the back of your life. You might, not, you might not even know what the soundtrack is, but you're dancing to it. You're living life to it. And the soundtrack to Christians, the soundtrack to our church, Trinity Life, is the soundtrack of the gospel. That's the score. We live in the score of the gospel. Uh, yours may not be, but that's okay. This morning, I want to uh, take a real quick uh, a minute to to summarize or to kind of expound on actually verse 18 in James chapter 1, because verse 18 actually succinctly uh, arranges the message of the gospel, uh, and it explains the how and the why of faith, all right? So this is what verse 18 says. It says, of his own will, he's talking about God, of his own will, he brought forth, he brought us forth by the word of God, I'm sorry, by the word of truth. How? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first roots of his creatures, that's the why. The how is he brought us forth, the why is that we would be a first fruits of his creatures. We have faith in the gospel because God makes it possible. He implants life into dead people. Uh, it can't be brought. It can't be bought. It can't be earned by effort. Uh, it's God's volition, his will. Uh, so James uses this word, epicuasin, which means to bring forth after pregnancy. Right? He brings us forth by the word of truth. The gospel. The only way that you could be in relationship with God is if God Himself did that. And the gospel is this that the message that Jesus is the Son of God and He brings freedom into the whole world. So God actually transfuses the gospel into our lifeblood, transforming our DNA. He usurps what we used to be, and now our whole entire history and our future is changed. The music changes, the soundtrack to our life changes. All the universe begins to dance to the gospel. But where's the evidence of this, right? The skeptics will ask, well, what's, what, what do you mean? What's the evidence? And James says in verse 18 that actually you're the evidence. The church is the evidence. You're the first fruits. James isn't being pompous. He's not being a Christian elitist. What he's saying is that if there is a better, better reality that's based on the life and the death of Jesus Christ, and it's not the soundtrack of enlightenment, it's not the soundtrack of, um, you know, self-improvement, it's not the soundtrack of survival of the fittest, but if it's a, if it's the soundtrack of that Jesus died and he saved the world and provides freedom for everybody, then the church must be the evidence that this is true, right? Uh, so the word first fruits means that you guys were the first converts to this new reality. The church is the first. The universe will follow, but the church is the first converts of what the future will look like. So James is saying to the church, you may suffer, you may look weak at times, you may even doubt, but faith works. You're the first fruits that God is going to change the universe. You're going, you're, you're going from orphan to adopted children, beloved, accepted, parented, resourced. You have the greatest inheritance of all time. You're going from 
orphan to adopted because God is actually in the process of making this planet, this universe, an adopted creature of his. It's going to undergo the same conversion that you as Christians have already undergone. And so the Apostle Paul, he actually, Paul, who's a different apostle from James, um, Paul was an, an apostle to the skeptics, to those who didn't understand God in this way. And so Paul writes something very similar in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. I think we have it up here. Paul says that the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and then obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Obtain your freedom. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul's saying is that, man, all of creation, the whole universe wants to be a Christian just like you in, in some sense. It wants to be born again. It wants to have the same joy and freedom that you do. The universe is longing for this. You're the evidence for this. Keep going, church. You're the evidence that God is going to do this. You're the evidence that God is going to make our faith work. So Paul is saying that this is not just a philosophy or a pie in the sky, wishful thinking. The whole entire universe is going to change because of what God is doing. And you're the first ones to experience this. One day the stars will change and they'll, they'll function properly. Stars won't die anymore. They're longing for the day for that to happen for them. But you, you get to, to experience that already. Now, of course, in a room like this, uh, not everybody believes this. Not everybody believes in the word of truth that James is talking about. But you should want to believe in some of it. Like, even if you don't believe in the word of truth, you should want to believe in the results of what we're talking about here, what Paul's saying. Don't you want to believe in the parts about evil and injustice being overturned? The insecurities of life going away. Don't you want to believe in the part about being set free from bondage, corruption, futility? And, and what Paul is saying really is that creation, the earth, you, everybody, even though we don't know we believe in the word of truth, we still long for what Paul is saying. We, we, want to, we long to be set free. That's the inquisitive heart. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean that you're not seeking after God. I like to tell people oftentimes that your doubts are actually inquiring. You're just inquiring about God, and that's okay. So what happens is that James is actually continuing on in verse in chapter 1. He's writing to the church on how to effectively address inquisitive hearts. How, how do I work with those who have inquisitive minds? They want to know God. And so he's saying, well, these are the ways that you do it. Because the inquisitive heart wants freedom and justice. It's just not so sure about the word of truth. So how do you talk to those kind of people? And so we're going to look at three things this morning. Uh, how do we communicate the word of truth that claims to one day completely change the universe? That's a big subject to have over our Starbucks conversation, <laughs> that I'm going to tell you the truth that's going to change the universe one day. But how do we do that? And James gives us two principles and one example. Two principles one example. Principle number one is we need humble communication. Humble communication. And this is James, uh, starting verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What does it mean that the word saves your soul? Well, I think it means that it fully humanizes you. It makes us better listeners. It makes us better communicators. Our hearts are more compassionate. It saves our soul. We're more human. How? Well, in Christ, your dishonest thoughts, your hurtful actions, all those things in Christ are transformed by forgiveness. So in Christ, God no longer holds anything against you. God's not angry at you in Christ. If God's not angry at you, the God of the universe loves you, then how can anybody offend you? If the best dude in the world loves me, how can anybody come up to me and have a chip on their shoulder and offend me? Everything about me has been made right. It's been restored. You're made right in God's eyes because of Jesus. The Word says that Christ died in your place, erasing all of your offenses. So don't be, don't be offended when people walk around saying, man, you've got a stinky attitude. You need to change. If you know that God has, Jesus has protected you from God's wrath against your sin. And so when somebody points it out, you don't have to be offended anymore. Does that make sense? If you truly live in the story that Jesus has brought complete forgiveness to you, you can walk around confident even when somebody says to you, you know, you're, you get on my nerves, frankly. You shouldn't be easily offended. And so many people want to debate the political correctness of sin. But I say this, if sin is forgiven, we can talk about it all day. Because I'm, it doesn't, I won't be offended if you want to talk about my sins. If you're not easily offended, then this is what happens. If you're not easily offended, you become a better listener. Because you're not trying to always defend yourself. If you're not easily offended, you become a better communicator because you want to say the right things. You're not just trying to get back at them. If you are not easily offended, your heart would be in the right place where you want to give love. More. You don't want to withhold, just be a passive-aggressive person. I'll get them back withholding from them. If you're not easily offended, which I would submit that if you're in Christ Jesus, you shouldn't be, then it's easy for you to be a better listener, better communicator, and more compassionate towards others. Your soul, James says, is being saved. And James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness or the justice of God. And what he means by that is that our lack of compassion towards others actually prevents us from acting the way God would act towards others. That's what God's righteousness would be. God's righteousness in your life means that you would act towards people the same way that God would. But then the, 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 the hurt and the pain and the offense keeps you from doing that. Uh, so, for example, if I demonize the gay community, or if I demonize liberals or conservatives, if I lack compassion towards Muslims and Hindus, I will never act towards them the way God would act towards them. Did you guys hear that? If you demonize a group of people, you will never act towards them. You will never bring to them the righteousness of God that God would. If I were demonizing people, I would be slow to hear and quick to speak. 
I would be slow to understand and quick to judge. I would ignore their hearts in conversation and I would force my points onto them. I may believe the right things, but I believe them in the wrong way. So Christians, can I just admit that we suck at this. A lot of us do. We're not very good at practicing this portion of James. Let me give you an illustration. Let me say one name, and I wonder what kind of emotions this evokes, but Caitlyn Jenner. Do I need to explain Caitlyn Jenner to anybody? I do. Okay, all right. So Caitlyn Jenner is uh, is Bruce, or was Bruce Jenner. I, um, and so Bruce Jenner, Olympic athlete, uh, you know, his second name to fame is uh, he married the Kardashian family. Um, and so, uh, which may made him famous, even more famous than his uh, Olympic gold medal. Uh, I've seen this week on Facebook some really beautiful responses to Caitlyn Jenner from the Christian community. But I've also seen some really ugly, ugly, ugly responses to Caitlyn Jenner. The best response I've seen so far is um, this right up here. Do you, have, you guys have the uh, picture of... Uh, uh, yeah, there you go, okay. There's Caitlyn Jenner, which I... Fairly attractive for a 60-year-old. Um, but a pastor out in New York City uh, tweeted this this week. And I best response I've seen so far... He says, Dear Caitlyn Jenner, next time you're in New York, I'd love to grab coffee. It'd be great to hear your story. I'd love to hear your story. Quick to listen. Slow to judge. Not trusting in the gospel that saves us, the gospel that makes us fully human, it actually makes you proud. When you say you believe something, but you really don't in your heart, it makes you a proud person. Because all the knowledge is up here, but it doesn't trickle down here. So it prevents us from the meekness that James is talking about. That's actually, that's the channel. Our meekness is actually the channel for us to share the salvation of God. Nobody ever beats anybody over the head. Uh, well, the colonials tried to do this. And you can argue whether or not there was true conversion. But you can't bring in the sword and the guns to begin to change people's hearts. It's meekness. The lack of compassion prevents us from effectively sharing the implanted truth that's inside of you. So what happens is you keep it hidden from other people. Pride is a great hindrance to the gospel in our city. What's keeping from people? What's keeping people from hearing the gospel in our city? Not responding, not accepting but hearing the gospel in our city. Could it be the pride of the church? Some of you guys are more liberal than others, and you look at uh, people uh, often, you say they're very close-minded people, but you know that it works both ways, right? It works both ways. There are those who want to crucify Caitlyn Jenner, and then there are those who want to crucify those who want to crucify Caitlyn Jenner. Pride works in both camps. Nobody's safe from pride. Both talk past each other. Slow to listen. Quick to talk. But here's the good news. In both camps, and I don't know which camp you're in. You may be on this camp where you're crucifying Caitlyn Jenner, or you're in this camp where you're crucifying those who crucify Caitlyn Jenner. But James is saying in both camps, both of you guys, everybody, everybody 
can come to God and receive the compassion of God into their lives. You can take every offense and you can bring it to God in Christ. And He will transform you. He will transform you. Are you tired of being angry? Some of you guys are some grumpy old people. I know. Because I've walked with you for two, three years. You're just grumpy. Don't you want to change? Every offense. It's like the, the bow and arrow on the back. Pull it out. Offer it to God. Every offense. That's the only way that you'll be quick to listen and slow to speak. Trinity Life, James tells us to be meek. Tells us to be meek, realizing that our pride is overcome with forgiveness. My dream, Mike's dream, our leadership team, our dream for our church is this. That we welcome everybody into our community. Everybody. Is it going to be hard? Yes. Is it going to be messy? Yes. Are we have to always talk about what we believe? Yes. Are people going to mess up? Yes. Our dream is that because of what James is talking about, we're quick to listen and we're slow to judge people. That we'll walk with people for years as they're doing whatever they're doing in their life. Walk with love, walk with truth, but we'll walk with them nonetheless. That's our dream for the community. We want our church to grow. Man, I, I'll be honest with you. I hope we fill up Jarvis before we move on to the next venue. Now, if we're going to go to 222, then uh, we may need to rethink that. But I don't hope that we fill up this venue because we have slick marketing. I hope that we fill up a venue like this because our heart is as big as the gospel. Caitlin Jenner, next time you're in Toronto, I'd love to grab a coffee with you and hear your story. Accepting others into our church and into our homes is not just listening and talking, though. Uh, let me ask you this question. When's the last time someone was invited into your home so that you can help them work through spiritual questions? Come into my house. Come into my space. When's the last time? This is not a question of condemnation. I'm just wondering if you're curious yourself. When's the last time somebody came into your house because they wanted to grow in their knowledge and faith? It takes action. It takes the second principle that James talks about. It's integrity in action. Here's the second principle, that your integrity needs action. Uh, verse 22, but be doers of the word, not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Um, uh, in the 1970s, an anthropologist um, brought a mirror to the Biami people of Papua New Guinea. The first time a mirror had ever entered into their community, they'd never, ever, ever had the concept of a mirror. And the tribe reportedly reacted with terror instead of fascination. Could you imagine seeing yourself for the first time at 25? Like, would you be impressed or would you be scared? <laughs> they were scared. Dan McCartney, he writes a commentary on James. 
And he says the metaphor of a man looking at himself in the mirror is significant for two reasons. Number one is that mirrors in the first century were not common. Okay? So you couldn't, like, every morning look up in the mirror and say, okay, fix this, fix this. Easy job for me. Um, you know, you just, so they didn't have that. And then number two, he said in Greco-Roman ethical philosophers, they thought that the pathway to moral improvement was self-contemplation. The metaphor was looking to the mirror. So James is saying that it's it's self-deception. It's self-deception to think that moral goodness comes by the occasional and the casual self-contemplation. Like, you're not going to become better if you just occasionally just think, ah, oh, what can make me better? Right. As a believer, James is saying, you're actually lying to yourself if you hear the Word of God, feel warm and fuzzy, and do nothing. You've actually lied to yourself if you were to walk out today, felt warm and fuzzy. That was a great service. And then did nothing about it. You've mentally tricked yourself into thinking that you're done with responsibility. Don't deceive yourself. This may be a tweetable. Let's say it is. By not acting on the truths of God, you will eventually lose your search for truth. If you don't act on what you know to be true, you will eventually stop searching. A couple of you guys can give that testimony. By God's grace, you came back. There are three reasons why I I would say that I would believe something and not act on it. Number one is this, how I believe is wrong. I believe something just cognitively and just theoretically. Cognitive knowledge and theoretical knowledge is knowledge. It's not belief. Okay. Uh, secondly is this, I live in fear or in disobedience. The only reason why I would believe something and not do it is because I either fear something or I'm being completely disobedient to it. And the third thing is um, I actually don't believe it, to be honest with you. I just, I've been faking it. I really don't believe this stuff. So James provides the method for overcoming these three reasons. And he says this, stop staring in the mirror. Stop looking at yourself. Stop staring at your problems. Stop staring at your mess. Instead of telling God how big your problems are, tell your problems how big your God is. James says, look into the perfect law. Look into the law of liberty, the law of freedom, and persevere in that. Stare at that. Hear God's truth. Trust God's truth. Obey God's truth. Can I be, can I be honest with you guys? Like, when I worry about something, when I'm anxious about something, it's only because I'm always thinking about myself. And the only way, the only way that I can overcome that is I'm thinking about something that's better than myself. And I'm, I'm very arrogant. So there's only a few things better than myself. And I would concede that at least God is better than me. So I have to stare at God. I have to stare at His Word. And then I have to ask, my gut doesn't feel this, God, because my gut feels wrenched inside. But what's the right action that I need to take right now? And then I take it. Do I always feel confident in it? No. But somebody who doesn't act on truth will eventually stop searching for truth. 
Henry Nowen had a chance with David Kulpitz this week to go visit Henry Nowen's grave. And Henry Nowen writes this, that Jesus was a revolutionary who did not become an extremist since he did not offer an ideology but himself. Jesus doesn't inspire passivity. He doesn't inspire anarchy because he's not inspiring an ideology. He actually offers himself. And so he inspires humble action that's based on the justice of God. Why? Because Jesus is the justice of God. The justice of God is not an idea, a knowledge. It is a person that's found in Jesus. Let me say this, that one of the best ways for you to be accountable for action in your life is to live in community. We won't have body life groups. This would be the last one this week, so go this week. But live in community. Come out to the summer discipleship. Be accountable for your actions. This week, some of us, you should start out a conversation with somebody from church and you say, to be honest with you, this is the area in my life that I'm failing in. You know, if I had to be honest with you, I make a lot of money. I just misspend it terribly. I'm not saying that. I'm saying maybe some of you could say that. Some of your sentences this week need to be, you know, I've been lying to people about this. There's a person that I'm supposed to love, but I just, I'm I'm avoiding them right now. I really, 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 really want to give up. But to be honest with you, I just need to hear you say, don't quit. This is the way you're accountable for your actions, is you live in authentic community. Trinity life. Can we be that kind of church? I'm asking you. Ryan's got like two weeks. Ryan's like, yeah, he's the only one. Come on, Ryan. I expect complete authenticity from you in the next two weeks. Instead of guilting people and saying, oh, you're, you're really a disappointment, or I've lost my trust in you, maybe we can say to one another, in Christ, you are not your failures. You can tell me anything because in Christ, you're not your failures. In Christ, you are better than your passivity. I know you slept three days in this week. That's okay. Because in Christ, you're better than your passivity. I know you're not being obedient right now. I'm patient with you. Because you're better than that. I know that in Christ, you're better than that. I don't like it when you call me at 1 a.m. in the morning, but in Christ, I'll pick up the phone. You don't think this kind of community... This kind of community is not theoretical. You don't think it into existence. You act it into existence. Not every, not everyone in Toronto wants this kind of community. They don't. They're, it's okay. There's hermits and, you know, that's how they live their life. But some do. A lot of people do. And James gives us an example of one group that specifically wants and needs to live in this kind of community. So here's his example, is that you would look after widows and orphans. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father. 
is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And really, verse 26 and verse 27, it's the summary of the whole entire book, to be honest with you, but definitely these passages. James is saying, is if you think you're a devout, observant person of God's word, if you think that that's who you are, that the gospel has changed your life, then number one, you need humble communication, and number two, you need integrity in action. And according to the word of God, according to the way that the justice of God happened throughout the scriptures, is this, that God consistently was concerned after the vulnerable of the most vulnerable in the cities. That he cared for the fatherless, because it's the fatherless that can't defend themselves. And there are two things that James puts, he puts a weight onto this statement. All right. The weight is this, that obedience to God's word is always based on our relationship to God as a loving father. So he says that religion is, uh, uh, is, is pure and undefiled before God our father. We don't obey out of drab obedience or compliance. We do it because when we love others, especially those that are vulnerable, we're, we're showing the love of God to them. Number two is that there's a real connection for caring for the vulnerable and your holiness. There's a real connection to loving the vulnerable and you keeping yourself unstained from the selfishness and the greed and the consumerism of the world. Your struggles with, with lying and, and, and sex and all these things are big struggles. But I would submit to say that probably the biggest and the most common struggle that most of us have, that God looks at, and he's saying, I'm waiting for this, is this, that you have too much time and too much money on your hand. You may think you're stressed out to the max, but your stress is all about you. How much of your stress is for the vulnerable? Jesus stresses over the vulnerable. Great quote, I won't be able to say all of it. But Henry Nowen talks about his time at Daybreak in Richmond Hill. And Daybreak is a community of adults that are intellectually and developmentally challenged. Uh, and so he spent the last 10 years of his career there. He was a well-known Catholic priest, spiritual guide to many. And he gave that up. He said, this is, this is, I need to do something that's tangible. I need to stop talking about it. I need to stop leading people in it. I need to do it myself. And he wrote this. He said that this experience was, in many ways, is still the most important experience of my new life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, the self that can show things, prove things, build things. And it forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable open to receive and to give love regardless of my accomplishments. No one says, man, for the first time in loving the vulnerable, I realize that I need the same. I don't need to put up the facade anymore. I don't need to pretend. I got to live that life because I lived it with the vulnerable. Here's a plug for our summer discipleship. And towards the end of the summer, uh, 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 Michelle will lead us in a workshop in, in how do we work with those who live around us. I have people in my square, uh, uh, you know, my block radius that would fall into the category of what James is talking about. How do I love them? And I just love them and give them gifts. But how do I open my life 
so that they're integrated into my life. Um, I want to be really practical about this, and I have a really great conclusion that I may not get to, but this is probably more important than my conclusion. Inside of your uh, uh, program this morning is this card right here, okay? And if, can you pull it out real quick? All right. Um, <clears throat> so here's what this card says. It says, do you or someone you know have a real need? We believe in faith that God can meet this need. We believe that faith works. I'm, I'm, I'm asking God to up the ante for Trinity life with this card, okay? I don't know if God's going to show up, but I'm asking him to show up. And so in this card, what I'd like for us to do this morning, and Ben, I'll go ahead and Ben, I'm going to invite you up and, and uh, lead us as we uh, finish here. But as we get ready for communion, I want you to slowly think through anybody in your life that may have a need. And I want you to fill out this card as best as possible. First, your name, and then the person of the name that has a need. Now, if that need is you, then, then you need to be honest and just say that need is you. Okay? Their phone and their email, and then a brief description of what their need is. And so uh, when we take communion, I want you to, uh, to, to fill this out, you know, as an exchange for the blood and the, the bread and body. If you don't have anybody, that's fine. You just don't have anybody. But if you know, maybe there's a neighbor, maybe there's somebody close to you, maybe there's a no-name person that you see on the front steps of Loblaws all the time. I don't know. But you write that down. You write it down here. And during our offering time, why don't you drop it back in the offering basket. And we're going to pray over these cards. And you're going to pray over your own card as well. And we're going to ask God for the next couple of weeks that, God, we can't, we can't meet all these needs. Like, pay somebody's rent. We can't do that, God. But we're going to ask God to show up. That, God, you, you do this. We believe that you do this. And then when God puts it on our hearts to say, no, actually, you do this, guess what? We'll have to obey. This is the only way that we can build a community that we want to build. Is we obey God and love those who are most vulnerable. And so it's just some guidelines. If somebody uh, in your neighborhood, let's say, um, can't pay their Corvette bill, uh, <clears throat> they may fall outside the boundary of what I'm talking about this morning. Um, so use some discernment with that. But this is a serious time for us to say, James 19 through 27, God, we're going to do it. We'll do it. Like, we're not going to be the church that is warm and fuzzy and goes home. We'll do it. We'll do it. Let's close our eyes and prepare our hearts for communion. Can I say to, to you uh, in this room this morning that for, for you, maybe your first action isn't to just love the orphans and the widows. Your first action is to love God. It's to trust Him. To trust that Jesus takes the offenses of your life, that He accepts you in Christ. Your first action is to accept this into your life. And if you've done that, then what makes sense is baptism. That you proclaim it. You let people know. You're not shy about it. It's not an implanted word that's hidden because of the pride that covers it. 
And so if the first call to action this morning that I'd like to, to give is, would you trust in Jesus with your life? And if you've had, would you obey in baptism? James says that the gospel is a story of the orphan being adopted as children of God. The gospel is a story of the widow who is given in marriage to the groom that will never leave her or forsake her. You are the orphan that God is adopting into his family this morning. You are the widow, and Jesus is the lover of your soul. Let me urge you to accept that this morning. This morning, as we take communion, we'll have prayer ministers up here as well. They can pray with you. They can pray with any issue in your life. And secondly, the call to action is this. If God's put a person on your heart, or if you're that person and you need to take a step of faith and you've filled out the card, I also want you to take prayer this morning as well. And pray for this person, or pray for yourself. That you would have the courage to overcome the fear to take action. God, that's what we pray this morning for us. As we come to communion and as we remind ourselves that all of our offenses have been stewarded to Jesus, not to us, to Jesus, that his blood was spilled for us, that his body was broken for us, God. Help us to not just say that message or thank that message, but to live it out in action. We do this as a body, as a church, as a family. 